This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Historical surprises. Political hatted pigeons. Sarah Bernhardt. And Dark Watchers. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. So folks, it's time for the preamble hut in which we get uh, little bits of business out of the way. And uh, in this case, the business is uh, pretty darn big. Uh, last week, uh, while you were uh, perhaps in lockdown in your homes throughout the Western world, you may have been wondering why Ken and Robin weren't talking about the world situation and the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And the reason for that is that we record 10 days in advance. So stuff's got real, as they say, uh, in the uh, interval. We're going to continue to have a 10-day uh, recording gap between recording and release. Uh, and in general, uh, in the uh, weeks and months ahead, my impulse is to counter-program the pandemic. A couple of people have asked us to do segments on uh, past plagues and, and so forth. But Ken, are, are you feeling that? I'm not yet in the Totentons stage of this. I'm still in the Decameron stage, right? Let's gather in our crenellated abbey and, you know... Eat up all of our pandemic peanut butter for a bit. Yeah. So let's, uh, so we'll be talking about, uh, stuff like mobile gaming and, uh, entertainment that you can access from, uh, the safety of your home. Because, Perhaps we'll uh, talk about stews in the food hut or something like that. Stews in the food hut, that sort of thing. Uh, even people who are uh, heroically required to still be out working in the world, uh, you know, if you are uh, working in grocery retail, for example. Or you're uh, a long-haul trucker. You're a long-haul trucker. We thank you for your service. Uh, we don't assume that everybody is able to hunker down, but uh, everybody will spend some of their time hunkered down more than they would normally. Uh, and uh, we're going to try and be your, your Bob Hope and your Vera Lynn. Then we will switch off so you'll never know which of us is which. Exactly. Uh, so uh, if you if you get that reference, you're you're ready for the history. <laughs> and and you're also at at uh, at risk. <laughs> so don't lick your face or anyone else's face. Yes, or, or perhaps use that reference when convincing your parents to conduct themselves in a, in a safer manner. So, Bob Hope and Vera Lynn said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the podcast is recorded uh, remotely. Uh, you may notice even uh, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, especially the mainstream ones, even some of those are going down for a while because they have been used to doing interviews face to face. But as everybody knows, I'm in Toronto. Uh, Ken's in Chicago. Uh, Rob Borges is, uh, is out on the prairies. 
Uh, so uh, as long as uh, Ken and I and our uh, audio editor all uh, remain healthy, we're we're well more, more than uh, two meters away from each other. Yes. And uh, we're going to uh, keep going and uh, knock wood. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep on doing that. Uh, if uh, you are looking for ways to occupy yourself now that you have a lot more time on your hands uh, and you didn't start with us seven years ago, there's uh, 450 hours, approximately speaking, of back Cardis content. So, and we do still maintain all of that online, uh, even though that's sort of a bandwidth hog. So you could access that and we'll uh, be looking in the weeks ahead to find other ways to uh, keep everybody uh, entertained during a viral wartime. Uh, and on that note, Ken, let's uh, go back to trying to make some fun for people. Absolutely. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, oh, look at that. We've got a big old historical atlas, and we've got, uh, is that Arnold Toynbee? It can't be. He's a mediocre historian at best. It must be a real historian. We just can't read the label. Because we're talking <laughs> real historical events in gaming and how to surprise your players with them when, and theoretically, they have the same Wikipedia that you do, and at least uh, the same 10 minutes to look it up that you had before game. Robin, do you have thoughts on this? I know that you have ventured into real history in 1895 Paris and are now back in possibly the realist of history, Canada in the 50s, right? Yes, indeed. So, yeah, I'm running uh, a, a game I'm calling Canadian Shield, uh, which is a extreme variant of... Uh, Follow Delta Green uh, to the extent that it may or may not have any Cthulhu's in it. And so uh, things that I'm running across, there's that temptation of finding something about the real world that is so uh, amazingly cool that you want to surprise your players with it. And the question, of course, is whether you should try to uh, do that or not, given the fact that they could theoretically uh, discover that on their own. Uh, for example, by listening to the podcast in which you reveal historical <laughs> tidbits that you found in yeah. your research. And right. so I guess the obvious answer to this is always the real reveal is never just a historical fact that they could look up, right? It's that the, the, the history is the delicious uh, textural layer that goes on to something weird and nerd troped. And that's, that's the real surprise of the scenario. So that, you know, if, you know, you're doing something about, you know, say the, the Avro Arrow, that the fact that the Avro Arrow is in 1959 is, uh, is scrapped is not the big surprise thing at the end of this scenario, but rather just part of the texture of that. And it's, there's some level of weirdness, a secret world uh, beyond that. But still, sometimes can I imagine you find things that you, find so delightful that you want to spring them on the players. Oh yeah. There's, there's armies of delightful things. And my players as a group have become callous and inured. Quite frankly, I, I discovered a very, very fun Templar castle, or I guess technically an assassin castle in uh, Iran, uh, Samaran, which uh, managed to be in official British surveys on the other side of the river from which it is now. It was described both as six-sided and eight-sided in various documents. Uh, the Mongols theoretically destroyed it, but it's still here. And it's now in the middle of a lake 
that was made by a hydroelectric dam. So obviously it's a magic castle. And I found all this stuff out and I'm revealing it to the players bit by bit. And at the end of the, the whole bit where they're, you know, narrowing everything down to this weird castle, one of my players, uh, Josh says, this would be much more impressive if I didn't know you didn't make it up. And it's like, <laughs> that's the opposite of the right answer, Josh. If I'd made it up, it would be far less impressive. Josh was, of course, just attempting to annoy me and it worked. But yeah, so my players are, are very, um, uh, uh, either they're blase in, in my uh, Fall of Delta Green group. Uh, they are, they are, uh, mostly 20 somethings. And so therefore the notion of the 1960s as anything except for the part of, uh, history their high school teacher didn't get to is almost gone for them. So there was a brief discussion. Uh, have we landed on the moon yet? in uh, 1968 and right. who's president and things like that. They'll, they'll be horrified when they find out what happens to Janice, Janice Joplin. Right there. They're, they're, um, I, I did not in fact spring the assassination of Martin Luther King on them because I felt that that might actually come as an unpleasant surprise. So I just eluded past it and the adventure didn't involve that. So we have a group at that extent, which is a wonderful group in every respect, but uh, is just happy to, you know, roll with it and be excited and discover things. And uh, what what they do is they research uh, mythology. So if uh, right now they're in Ireland, so they're all uh, going nuts trying to find out stuff about the fairies and uh, and enjoying that. And of course, anything they find out can be subsumed into the greater mythos truths. But my other group, when I was in, uh, for example, Tombstone, uh, a lot of them had prior knowledge and some of them did some research to find things out. And then that becomes a collaborative process where they find a cool thing. And I immediately fold it into the story as a reward for them finding the cool thing. But it's easy to surprise people with something if either they want to be surprised. So it's the equivalent of sort of um, you've guessed who the murderer is in the murder mystery, but you still read because you want to know it. And then even the reveal is still a fun reveal or uh, you know that there's that the the guy is a vampire in the movie, and you're still excited when he reveals that he's a vampire. It's not surprise, but it's still excitement and joy in a different sense. Or you watch Hamlet, and you're like, oh, now comes the cool sword fight that I know is coming because I've seen Hamlet already. And it, you you can't spoiler Hamlet. You have, but the same excitement of a thing happening uh, is still present. So it's not about you know, oh my god. The moon, it's it's more about, oh, great, now we get to uh, play along with uh, with NASA. Right. And I, I think on the macro level, what we're talking about something is we're reassuring people who want to play with history that in general, this is a non-issue, that you don't, it's something you mostly don't need to worry about with players of good faith. And uh, if you don't have players of good faith in our current moment where we're all switching to remote play, it's easier to mute a player than ever before. <laughs> of course, in, a, in an era where we're all switching to remote play, players will have more opportunity to dive onto Wikipedia and look things up. So be ready, I guess, to be able to either um, incorporate or say, ah, that's just what surface history says. But in fact, the truth may be deeper than this, because as you know, there are already elves. So what else might have changed about the Medicis or whatever? Right. And in fact, if people are researching and looking stuff up, that's engagement, right? That's a sign that right. things are going well. That's, in that's good. That, that uh, to me, a player who's trying to catch me in something or dig deeper or uh, find out a fact about the setting that they can use to their character's advantage, that's positive. That means the player cares and is involved and, uh, and wants to be part of the story. Um, it's not, 
I mean, I, I guess way, way back when we were all kids, uh, if you were in a in a game with heavy setting mastery, if you were in Vampire uh, or you you were in uh, Forgotten Realms, and so there was actual you know uh, got your nose currency in knowing who the Nosferatu chief of Tampa, Florida was, and so you could bring him on to 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 flummox the storyteller. Maybe you know that happened back in the in the early. Uh, in the early times, but even then, the storyteller, the GM, is still the GM. You bring the Nosferatu chief of Tampa on screen. Now he's a GMC. Why did you do that? Who wants an extra Nosferatu, for God's sake? Right, and some of the uh, the temptation is is that is sort of the converse that you want players to know the significance of what's going on. That's beyond. Uh, the, the, the wider world is not discovered why this is an important historical event that you're at and you want to go, oh, you're, mm-hmm. you're invest, you know, this thing you're investigating. Well, it's, you know, it's actually this, this, uh, conspiracy that doesn't really get revealed until 1973. And, uh, you know, it will later be known as, as this scandal or that. And you can tell I'm dancing around an example that I'm not trying to blow because I know right. my players do listen to this uh, show. And so you may find yourself sort of uh, sometimes when there's something that is real, I found myself already wanting to heavily underline that. So uh, there was a point in my introductory section where I was reading off a check, a section of uh, right straight out of Charles Fort uh, because I wanted the players to know that, this bit of improbable weirdness is all actually true. Uh, normally, I wouldn't. I don't recommend reading large chunks of text. In fact, it's a boilerplate thing that I write in uh, a lot of different books: is don't just read this out loud, paraphrase it. But in this case, I did want to read it out loud to make that point to them because that was more fun to know that it's real, um, and also that I'm. I'm not so bad at reading things out loud so that they're interesting. I I guess the other thing we want to look at, though, is you have a player who has done the research, knows that they want to use that research, and how do they introduce it? So that if someone has, you know, gone and read up on Tombstone and they want to go uh, speak to this uh, obscure to everyone but uh, them and you uh, land baron who is secretly behind the cattle war. How do you make them work for it in order to earn that on screen in order to, because uh, you can just go, well, you know, why, why does the character know this as opposed to why does player know this? But since they've gone to all that trouble and it would be fun if they go talk to that person, how do you work that in? In, in anything, when the players want something out of the world, there is going to be some sort of, of barrier to it usually, unless literally what they want to do is, you know, I don't know, go to Nadar's shop and get a photograph taken. He sells photographs. All right, fine. You can do that. But if you want to talk to someone and try and involve them in your uh, ridiculous magic problems, then there's going to be some sort of obstacle. And that either is going to be, well, we know we want to get to this uh, land bear and we want to get to John Chisholm. We have to, you know, shoot one of his enemies or fight one of his enemies to draw his attention. Or we have to ride up to his ranch and uh, go through a scene uh, where he's suspicious and angry. And we have to sort of placate him with, with some sort of offer or, or at the very least with really good role playing and a, and a good reaction role. It's not just the automatic, you know, deployment of a puzzle piece unless they literally are, you know, using contact points or something like that to make him an instant ally. And even then, if you made John Chisholm an instant ally, well, guess what? Now you have his opponents as your instant opponents because he does not exist in a vacuum. Yes. Yeah, so the thing is, is to look at that when a player tries to do that, not as, 
them uh, gazumping you by having gone off and done the research. But that's an apple for the teacher, right? Exactly. Again, it's engagement. And your uh, job as GM is not to go, well, I don't believe that your character would know that, but rather to find a way to yes and them Mm -hmm. so that that cool, fun thing can happen in a way that makes sense in the storyline. And so depending on the situation and the level of advantage, you might be tempted, say, in uh, gumshoe to ask for a a point spend or a push, depending on which version you're looking for. Uh, And you, I would do that if the player would then feel additionally rewarded for having done that. Right. Because often uh, the things that the players are spending on uh, is, uh, that makes them feel that they're accomplishing something and that's, uh, uh, underlines the importance of it and they want to do it. But at other times, for example, when they're out of the appropriate points are spent, you might just say, well, explain to me in flashback why you, why you know John Chisholm, why have you heard of him? And again, you know, as you've already pointed out, that just opens up more opportunities for a uh, story and for trouble. And it's almost, it's hard to think of examples where you as a GM, uh, can't then add another cool difficulty after they've forwarded the story by using by acting as authors, right? Is that right. it's okay? In fact, desirable for the other players to be committed enough to be adding uh, stuff to to the historical pot, and that shows interest and shows what they want to do, and that's something to encourage rather than to get caught in a. Well, it, would it be realistic for this hobo to know John Chisholm? I don't know, but it's like find a way for the hobo to know him. Right, that's your job. Right. I mean, the the whole point, right, of any of this is to collaborate in telling a fun story, and the more collaboration that happens, the better. In my book, uh, maybe there are still people out there who are very, very, you know, high and hard DM screen. And I am the master of the world and the players are only the master of their little miniatures. And we're going to go through and I can imagine a world in which maybe that makes sense. Some sort of zombie apocalypse or like um, a dark sun, something where every man's hand is turned against you. But by and large. A player who builds any part of the setting, whether it's a pre-existing part like John Chisholm or a part they made up or a part they went and they found in the in the source book, that's a player that is helping. And helping is sort of the whole point of the activity. Otherwise, you could just, you know, email them your fanfic about John Chisholm. And right. goodness, wouldn't that get an audience? <laughs> yeah. Even when the thing they're researching is, as you suggested earlier, uh, fictive facts about a complicated world like the world of darkness or forgotten realms. Find a way to use that to your advantage, right? If you have somebody else to be your memory bank for all of the characters in a place in the Forgotten Realms, you know, go with that. It's not, oh, no, you read the GM stuff. It's like, because you can always find another way to to complicate it. Uh, You know, give it's the old, uh, you know, the the more you give your players, the more trouble they'll get into a scenario. And uh, I think at this point, we'll be in trouble if we just keep uh, rambling on about uh, this topic. So it's time for us to take a very brief pause and then ramble on about another topic. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet 
from Gumshoe Master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. This show may record 10 days in advance, but there are certain stories that we remain on top of in a segment we call Ripped from the Headlines. And uh, this time around, beloved Patreon backer Chris Lydon wants to know what's really going on in a story where pigeons were wearing political hats in Las Vegas. So uh, prior to a uh, Democratic primary debate in Las Vegas, pigeons started showing up wearing uh, political hats. And not just any political hats, but the iconic political hats that define our era, the red MAGA hats associated with uh, President Donald J. Trump. And uh, before we go any further, we want to reassure everybody that no pigeons are harmed in the making of this news story. That, in fact, these turns out that the, the pigeons wearing this hat, these hats were rescue pigeons who'd been found, cleaned up with dove soap, that string unwrapped around their uh, their feet so they didn't have string foot, which is a thing that happens to urban pigeons. They were nursed back to health and then, uh, at worst, uh, possibly deeply embarrassed by having to wear these little miniature red MAGA hats. And they were, they were affixed to the pigeons with nothing more invasive than a little bit of uh, eyelash glue that would normally be used to put a false eyelash on. Right. So pigeons, they were well-treated, possibly well-fed, and, and at worst... Uh, they were subjected to some bad puns. Right. Now, I will I will say that even eyelash glue is still glue. It, when it comes off, it's going to pull out maybe not a pin feather, but maybe a feather. So it's not painless. Even, I mean, I've never put on false eyelashes, but I've had glue on my face. And when it comes out, it's not painless. So if you're saying no pain, I think that may be an exaggeration, but it's as minimal. It's as minimal as a pigeon 
can be pained in Las Vegas, I think, uh, especially if it's a pigeon with an aesthetic sense. And they did return to the secretive pigeon headquarters uh, for more hats when their hats came off. So they weren't mad at the people. Uh, maybe it was pigeon Stockholm syndrome. I'm not the expert on pigeons. In the previous outbreak, when pigeons had cool little cowboy hats, I did it. I, I posted something uh, on my uh, Twitter feed about how cool they looked in their little hats. And I was rightfully taken to task by someone who pointed out that even the mildest clue is still can hurt a pigeon. So kids don't be like pro Trump pigeon uh, embarrassers. Uh, fairly unnecessary admonishment, I'm fairly sure. But anyway, uh, don't glue things to animals, even your own right. animals. It's right. uncool. We're not saying do this, but the pigeons were not seriously hurt. Yes. Given given the average sort of story that we run into, there is less pain and damage than there is in most stories, even out of Las Vegas, especially right. out of Las Vegas. So these pigeons, these pigeons, they belonged to Pigeons United to Interfere Now or Putin. The handler of these pigeons, one Koo Hand Luke, compared this operation to uh, Operation Takana, a 70s CIA operation that you're going to tell us about now. Yes. Operation Takana. This was back in the, I think we've talked about um, uh, weaponizing animals for the CIA before, but uh, this one specifically was about attempting to put uh, cameras on pigeons so that they could, and of course, using pigeons for, you know, courier duty goes back to probably medieval times. And so the um, uh, uh, Operation Takana was in the 1970s uh, when they were doing the same deal with cats and other things. And they were attempting to see whether or not they could um, uh, send pigeons into the Soviet Union over the border and then have them fly back. Uh, having taken little cameras and the, the cameras were strapped not to their heads, but to their bellies. Uh, and it was a strap. It was not glued on. And uh, they attempted to use the cameras, but the cameras were too big. And uh, the CIA, I think, began to realize that this uh, could only go badly. And so they tried to come up with cover stories about, you know, animal research or something or other. And as they, as the cover story got more elaborate, I think they just gave up on the thing before they ever flew the pigeons over Leningrad because they were planning to fly them over the sub yards at uh, Leningrad, which is conveniently close to the Finnish border. And I imagine at some point, some analysts said, we're going to train pigeons in America, put them in a crate and send them to Finland and then stand close to the Soviet border, releasing pigeons and then if we're caught, we're going to say we were just doing animal research. At any point, did this occur to you that this was a terrible idea? So according to the CIA officially, Takana was a was a bum steer and never happened. Now, cameras have gotten a lot smaller. Uh, pigeon training is, uh, if anything, just as sophisticated as it ever was. But also now we have tiny drones. So I guess the question is, do we need pigeons? Are pigeons outmoded? And I guess Operation, uh, the, the Putin boys here in Las Vegas are here to say that, uh, while they may not be intelligence gatherers, they're propaganda vessels, right? Right. Because these pigeons are not there to take photographs, but to be photographed. Right. And to earn some nice free media, uh, with a, an anti-Trump message. But, is that interesting enough for us to talk about on the, on the show, Ken? I, I suspect not, because uh, therefore, what really must have been going on is that uh, a coup hand Luke, if that was his real name, if that was, was surely attempting to uh, uh, work a conjuring to invoke 
uh, the Parliament of Fowls. Uh, mm. And this, of course, as, as listeners all know, is the uh, 1381-ish poem by Chaucer, uh, in which someone uh, reading Cicero falls asleep and then is guided uh, to a celestial gate by uh, Scipio Africanus, uh, the, of course, the, the, the nemesis who defeated uh, Hannibal in the Second Punic War. And he is taken through a temple of Venus and uh, uh, appropriately uh, for that goddess, that's no uh, just sort of ordinary uh, sentimentalized Venus, but uh, a place of horror as well as beauty. But they're finally led uh, to a parliament where all the birds of different species are gathered and uh, three uh, male eagles are uh, putting themselves forward as candidates uh, to be the uh, the groom of a, a female eagle. Um, and she rejects them all in the end, but all of the other lesser uh, birds do get to pair off and uh, and couple up. So clearly this is a great uh, working of uh, love magic. Uh, and uh, and in what place uh, is love uh, more in the air or was in the air at that time and will be in the future than Vegas? It was more magically in the air as well, um, because Vegas yeah. is also uh, where... The, the the cabalistic possibilities of the world are always in flux, right? Because everyone's always placing bets. Odds are shifting. No one, uh, a, a conventicle of, of, of genuine cabalists pays less attention to the strange fluctuations of numbers than Vegas gamblers do. And so the possibilities involved in attempting to uh, the, the reason you hold your parliament of fowls in Vegas is not just because it is a place of love, but also because it is a place where uh, magical potential is at its height, uh, right? You have uh, a, a huge series of insanely dedicated temples designed to draw up the powers of various uh, Roman gods at Caesar's palace or uh, Merlin at Excalibur, all the, the Egyptian magics at the Luxor over and over and over. They have the, um, uh, the, the whirling of, of Kabbalistic possibility. Vegas is basically uh, where that, where that stuff is at, right? It's already a celestial gate. Mm -hmm, pretty much. And so given that magic is coming down out of there anyway, you might as well uh, try to um, uh, draw up some birds with it. And so, uh, surely, uh, this is an act of uh, political magic. They're trying to uh, harness the power of love against their chosen political opponent. And uh, I guess it will be some time, uh, if we ever find out, Ken, if this was a successful uh, working or not. And Chaucer, as we all know, Robin, uh, took the notion of the Parliament of Fowls from an earlier poem by the Sufi mystic Faradadin Attar, who wrote The Conference of the Birds, uh, which was itself about the birds all gathering to seek out uh, the Seamorg. And the Seamorg, it turns out, is all of the birds who survived to reach the Seamorg. It is, in fact, not the friends we met along the way, but the friends that, uh, that got all the way. And those birds become... Uh, the 30 birds see Murg in Persian and become the initiate godhead. And so that, that is the real goal, is if you can get these birds all wearing Make America Great Again hats all together in Las Vegas at the right Kabbalistic moment, you channeling the power of love uh, as a battery, not as an outcome. It's actually about making a magic bird brain that is enormous and has a great deal of power. 
and is somehow attached to a red hat. And I think it worked. Uh, well, wait a minute. I'm just I'm just now being informed that there's an even earlier antecedent to, to all of this ritual magic, which of course is Aristophanes, the birds, in which the oh. the birds and the gods uh, uh, get together, and the birds create uh, a Nephilicoxidia, a cloud city in the sky, and they are attempting to uh, ap- apotheosize a bird deity. So mm. uh, we'd better hope that the pigeons uh, did not mind having a little eyelash glue on their uh, head feathers because once the uh, the divine deity, the the president of the gods, as it were, uh, is incarnated. Or the birds, six of one. The Zeus of pigeons uh, comes on down. We'd better hope that uh, uh, the pigeons felt that we were uh, benevolent friends to them who provided them with lots of pizza crusts. Better hope that the eyelash glue was, in fact, painless. Exactly. Because otherwise, um, Kuhand Luke will pay the price of many a necromancer uh, who has called up that which he could not put down. And and on that note, we have uh, brought uh, the end of the segment to where we started at the beginning of the segment. And when things get circular, the tough get going through this commercial to another segment that lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Buy box seats to this podcast by joining such Patreon backers as... Darren Hennessy, Bill Sirwan. Bob Greider. Craig Maloney. And Matt Farr. The string quartet playing in the lobby. The white-gloved usher who hands you a playbill. The people looking at you through lorgnettes from their box tell us that we are in a very fancy Dan corner of the culture hut because we are in the Paris Comédie Française in 1895. And we are going to gaze through our own opera glasses at the lovely, the divine Sarah Bernhardt. Robin, what do we know about Sarah? And besides being the very first and greatest of the divas, what does she bring to us in our Yellow King games and beyond? Well, it turns out that Sarah Bernhardt is not only the most famous actor in the world, or actress, as they, of course, would have said at that time, but uh, has many cool little uh, gothic side notes to her story that uh, makes her an ideal figure uh, if Carcosa begins to intrude. And in fact, the the Paris book of the Yellow King role-playing game suggests that she could even be a patron who assigns uh, the investigator's missions if you uh, need a patron for your group. So in 1895, uh, she is 51 years old. So you often hear descriptions of her at this time saying, well, she was 
a bit past her prime at this part and still doing young ingenue roles, but she's the same age in 1895 as Jennifer Aniston or Naomi Watts are today and uh, has 10 times their star power. She's uh, a giant figure, not just in uh, France, but especially in America. She's huge there uh, in South America. She is the uh, one of the first world tour superstars, even bigger than Dickens. And she is uh, born in 1844 as uh, Henriette Rosine Barnard. And uh, she uh, starts out at the Comédie Française, which is the uh, national theater of, of France, essentially. And uh, she's associated over the years with many different theatrical companies, including having one named after herself uh, kind of uh, briefly just after the, the Yellow King period. And she has uh, some tough times in mid-career. There's a period where she is uh, she appears in the records of the Surete as a uh, a high class courtesan, and uh, even later on, apparently, you hate to see uh, it. Would for uh, an astronomical sum arrange for uh, a one time assignation? I think just because she found that fun and empowering. And so she, she yeah. did it. And also astronomical sums. Do not throw that back in her face until you yourself have been offered an astronomical sum for anything. Yes, indeed. And so uh, she was, uh, uh, her big roles uh, were uh, uh, Camille or, or the, the lady of the camellias. Uh, and these were the straight play versions of things that are now more famous in their opera adaptations, which were both originally novels and then adapted for the stage. She's at the straight play part of that. And then later they become uh, operas as well. And that's why we still remember them. So she was uh, the, the consumptive courtesan uh, who uh, suffers and dies because the disapproving father separates her uh, rich uh, lover from her and, and Camille. She's Fiona Tosca, the tempestuous opera singer who uh, uh, meets a terrible uh, end at the end where she topples off the, uh, uh, a wall or a bridge or something. I, f I forget what she topples off, but th the toppling is the point. Uh, she also yeah. plays male roles. She plays Hamlet. And uh, during the Franco-Prussian War, which is a, a generation earlier uh, than uh, the Belle Epoque, uh, she uh, turns the Odeon Theater into a hospital for the wounded. And she's a, a, a heroic uh, figure there. And, uh, there. and also one that you can uh, ascribe uh, many uh, large general ability pools, too, that uh, if she winds up on an adventure with the PCs, she might turn out to be uh, just as capable, if not more so, than they are in a, a way they might find uh, surprising for someone with a, a diva reputation. And her uh, role as sort of a figure in morale, she goes all the way to World War One. She entertains the troops in World War One, and uh, she doesn't die until 1923. So she has quite the life and career. And that means uh, 1923, you're thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, that's that's during the age of cinema. Yeah. Because you can see uh, her still today in silent films where she recreated uh, some of her uh, biggest roles. And uh, she was uh, a, a, an early vegetarian. Some periods of her life, she was straight up vegan. Other times she was a pescatarian. Uh, so, uh, if you, uh, admire people on the grounds of their diet, you can admire her for that. And certainly it's a detail you want to uh, put in when, uh, the, uh, player characters, uh, um, meet her. Um, she was famous as a storyteller about herself. And so, uh, the uh, characters may need to use assess honesty in order to tell, uh, whether they're her really awesome stories, 
are true or not, but some of them are true. So she's sort of a, 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 a both Meryl Streep and the uh, level of her fame and accomplishment as an actor and Brian Blessed in uh, the term in uh, her accomplishments as a fabulist. <laughs> right. Yeah. She was in an era when people were bigger than life uh, because that was the way you got famous and uh, more theatrical parts. And even for them, she was bigger than life. She was a, a sort of an enormous personality. And it's very much the diva comparison is very much like if Sarah Bernhardt is in your chronicle, in your story, uh, it's like suddenly Jennifer Lopez shows up. There's going to be entourages and people and all manner of things. And it's going to be a giant story. And you are going to be uh, invited to parties just to tell about uh, how you hung out with, with Sarah Bernhardt. It's not, uh, she's not just someone that you meet on the street in France, like half of these other uh, weirdo occultists. She is at the global pinnacle of fame. Yeah. You might have to make a composure role just to seem cool when you, when you meet right. her. Yeah. When you meet her. And um, the other thing about the divine Sarah, of course, is that she is intimately entangled in the origin uh, quote unquote of uh, the king in yellow because she was supposed to play, but did not play the titular role of Salome in Oscar Wilde's Salome and the set design uh, done by Aubrey Beardsley and the art uh, for the, for the play that was done by Ar Aubrey Beardsley and everything else involved her being draped in yellow silk through the entire play, the play being hung in yellow. It was going to be a giant yellow production of Salome and, uh, the play was banned in London. So she never played, uh, in Salome unless she did it for a small audience, uh, before 1895 at some point or maybe in 1895. And that is, of course, uh, a way in which the the darker play that Salome is a is a cover of uh, begins to eel its way into people's lives, right? Right. It's not difficult to figure out how an uh, how an actor gets a copy of a play. Right. No, it is, <laughs> it's it not is pretty threat. easy. Yes. Um, other things that uh, help bringing in the sort of the, the goth horror side of things is that famously uh, she slept and memorized lines in a coffin. Uh, not that there's anything like wrong do. with that. Yeah, but. Uh, you know, there's the boring answer of why she sleeps in a coffin and you could give her fangs, sure. But, you know, that's that's low-hanging fruit. We want, you want to do better. Um, she was also uh, an artist, a visual artist. She painted and she uh, did sculptures. And particularly, there's some super cool, you can look them up on the internet. She made some uh, inkwells of this sort of uh, beautiful alabaster-faced pale faced figure with beautiful black bat wings, uh, which is like right out of uh, the set design for, uh, for a Bella Pock horror game. Uh, so she uh, uh, had, has it going on all fronts and is not hard to uh, figure out how to work her into uh, your story. And as you point out, uh, you know, one of the disadvantages of dealing with her is just that there will be a superstar uh, swirl around her. Um, her story, of course, continues after the Bella Pock uh, in uh, 1905, she is on tour uh, in Brazil and she uh, does something she's done night after night after night in performing Tosca where she does a fall off of a set piece and the mattress was misaligned and she very badly injures her leg. And eventually uh, she uh, winds up having her leg amputated, uh, but that doesn't stop her from performing. She continues to 
do uh, stage performances, often uh, kind of dec- declaiming patriotic speeches and, and so forth. But within the period we're talking about, access to Sarah Bernhardt will also give the players the opportunity to rub shoulders with uh, not only her long string of lovers and her sort of not so impressive manager's son who has a who's a degenerate gambler who gambles away a lot of her money and she has to pawn her jewels, uh, but also uh, Gustave Duray and Auguste Escoffier, as we mentioned in a previous segment, and uh, Alexandre Dumas. Both Pere and Fee are her friends, and she's also a friend of Victor Hugo. So yeah, she plays. She's uh, stars in his and plays that he wrote. Yes. So. So uh, not all of those overlap with that precise period, but she can certainly uh, tell uh, stories about them and have information perhaps about a famous hunchback that the uh, investigators have to go and uh, and find and get information or a sword or a bell clapper or, or something like that. So basically, if you want to inject the superstar glamour that I think a lot of people uh, associate with the Belle Epoque, uh, having uh, Sarah Bernhardt come on stage uh, literally, as well as figuratively, at some point in your game is the way to go. She also, I think, as you alluded, had a amazing memory. She could uh, glance, basically, at a part and memorize all of it. She she claimed that she couldn't keep two parts in her head at the same time, so she couldn't memorize both Fedra and Hamlet, but uh, she could have all of it instantly. Her, her magic memorizing coffin. Her magic memorizing coffin. And so, therefore, even if the, if the King in Yellow is gone, maybe she remembers it and... Uh, it, is it worth having her recite it in her amazing, beautiful, perfect voice? Because maybe that will be even worse than having it performed in a way, is to have um, uh, the Divine Sarah uh, reciting uh, lyrics from it. But that may be the only way you get the information. Maybe that's why she's busy learning Fedra to, to drive that out of her mind. Mm-hmm. Over and over. Uh, well, I, uh, I have some hankering uh, to, to find some uh, snacks out in the lobby. So I'm going to uh, head out there. But uh, I bet once we've got our ice cream or whatever it is that they serve in uh, the Belle Epoque, uh, we'll be able to come in and find another hut waiting for us. Oh, goody. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined and mysterious of huts, the Liptony Hut, the one in which we don't really know what uh, where legend ends and weird science begins, uh, where rumors start, 
and uh, in fact uh, creeps away to die. But we do know that there in the corner we have the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking a kombucha and as always uh, ragging on the uh, reptoid alien where uh, we look out the window and we see, oh, wait a minute, there's not uh, an alien big cat out in the moor, but I think we're looking out at the Santa Lucia Mountains in California. And on those mountains, there stand some tall figures. They're, I can't, the scale is weird. They're either just looming or perhaps even literally gigantic. These are the silently surveying figures known as the Dark Watchers. And uh, esteemed Patreon backer David Shaw wants to know, Ken, about the Dark Watchers of the Santa Lucia Mountains. Okay. The Dark Watchers, we know, go back at least to 1937, because that is when no less an authority than John Steinbeck mentions them in a short story uh, called Flight, in which uh, his anti-hero Pepe looks back at the ridges and sees a black figure for a moment. Uh, he looked away quickly, for it was one of the Dark Watchers. No one knew who the Watchers were, nor where they lived, but it was better to ignore them and never to show interest in them. They did not bother one who stayed on the trail and minded his own business. And before you all hunt down the story, it's not a supernatural story. The Dark Watchers are just there, like, you know, creepy owls in a fairy tale. They're not it's not a magic story. It's a story about a, a man who does crime and it comes to a bad end. And Robertson, Robinson Jeffers, the poet, uh, mentions them in a poem uh, called Such Counsels You Gave to Me, in which he says he thought it might be one of the watchers who are often seen in this length of coast range, forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human. They come behind ridges to watch. But the uh, the narrator of the poem recognizes it not as a dark watcher, but as a reflection of himself, because it's about, you know, the dark watcher inside all of us, I guess. I don't know. I'm not the Robinson Jeffers expert. I'm the dark yes, watcher expert. Because it's not Manly Wade Wellman's poem. So. Exactly. And so the Dark Watcher sightings have continued down since then. Uh, there were a, a spate of them in the 1960s. There's been a number of them in even the recent cell phone era, which generally has not been good for cryptids. But there are not so many cell phone sightings, just people reporting to, to various uh, fora on the Internet. Um, the Dark Watcher, I think it's interesting that sometime between the 1930s and 1960s and now has gained a hat and a cane so that he looks more like Gandalf. They used to be bareheaded, as you can tell from the Robinson Jeffers poem, um, when he talks about seeing the thing's hair. Um, if he, if they were supposed to have hats, he wouldn't have thought it was a dark watcher. So the dark watchers have gained a, a, a spooky wizard hat and a, and a, a staff that they lean on like the grim reaper. A lot right. of people nowadays it might, might be all it. the pipe weed out in California. It could be the pipe weed. It could be the grim reaping. It could just be that sometimes since the 1960s, everyone who was walking in the big sewer has read Lord of the Rings and now knows what a mysterious watching figure is supposed to look like. Anyhow, you will see people say that the legend goes back to the Chumash, who are the uh, local uh, native tribe that lived there. A, a skeptic, a fun ruiner, has gone to a 1,700-page compilation of Chumash folklore and read it all, <laughs> looking for Dark Watchers, and found nothing. So the closest thing is that there's sort of a creepy being that comes up out of the ground, but it's not tall or enormous. It doesn't stand on the ridges. The argument that it's the Chumash is sort of uh, not proven, as we say in Scotland. Yes, right? the, the, the good old generic. It must also, this thing we made up must also have a parallel yes. in, in uh, First Nations lore because uh, 
because it must. Right. And and Steinbeck uh, apparently at least heard about the Dark Watchers from his mother or grandmother because John Steinbeck's son wrote a cryptid book about the Dark Watchers in which he talks about, I believe it's John Steinbeck's grandmother saying that when she was a girl, you used to go up into the mountains and leave food for the Dark Watchers, leave like flowers or fruit for the Dark Watchers so that they would be nice to you, which implies at the very least that um, uh, as long as there's been a uh, settlement in California, possibly even back to Spanish times, because they do have a cool Spanish name, Los Vigilantes Oscuros, um, which could just be someone translating things. The notion of, of these Dark Watchers along the the Big Sur is a thing. And this does put it back in the 19th century, uh, certainly. And that implies that whatever is causing it is uh, not just a transient uh, cultural moment like, oh, Gandalf. And you, you sort of pick a point. It does seem to be there's something about those mountains that makes it happen. And, and if I understand correctly, uh, Thomas Steinbeck, the son of John, who became a, a Fortean researcher of Dark Watchers, claims to have cited them himself as a kid. Yeah. The thing about the Dark Watchers, though, is uh, that they seem kind of passive. They're, they're, yeah, they, they're they, kind they of watch. dark and sinister, but they're not doing anything uh, terribly bad. But then we have the idea that, oh, wait, you've got to go propitiate them. You have to feed them in order to keep them on your side. And that implies that something can go wrong if people stop feeding them. And uh, I don't know whether the Dark Watchers are hungry or not and are just happy with the trail mix that people drop or uh, actually need it to be uh, given to them as a proper offering. Uh, you know, it's a sign of respect rather than just, you know, they need a snack. In they which case, scrounge, right? um, because the question now becomes, uh, how do we uh, make this into the, the fun kernel of a scenario? And if they're just sort of figures who kind of watch you while you're off in a, uh, a literary short story, uh, that doesn't uh, that doesn't get us very far. So how do we uh, activate them in order to make them central to a, a mystery, if not necessarily the uh, the villainous monsters that you have to go and hit with your axe? All right. Um, I think we can kind of come at it from a couple of different directions. I mean, first of all, they can simply be genius loci, the spirit of the big sewer. So if you want to do something in the big sewer, you have to get them at least on side because they watch people who don't involve themselves. But if you're a, ma a magic person, a player character type, then maybe they'll do more than watch. Maybe they'll, you know, recruit you or eat you or lure you into a, a, a crevasse and uh, wait for your ankle to break. And then they'll dine on your corpse. Who knows? So, so we have that sort of basic possibility that if you're setting your adventure anywhere between, say, Monterey and San Luis Obispo, then that's what you can have is the dark watchers as the sort of spirits of the, of the land. The fun ruiner explanation for dark watchers is that they are a combination of infrasound uh, blowing through the, the gullies and crevasses, uh, which makes everyone feel creeped out and something called the Brocken specter, uh, which uh, is also explains a similar phenomenon on the Brocken, which is a mountain in Germany and is apparently caused by the setting sun, casting your shadow up onto a cloud or onto mist that comes up off the ground at the moment. And uh, you sort of, you're creeped up by the infrasound. You look up, you see your own shadow. And that, of course, is what Robinson Jeffers may also be alluding to in the poem, where you look at the Dark Watcher, but you realize it's yourself. There is a uh, 
a, a report from, I think, 2011, where someone is talking about looking at the Dark Watcher and they move their hand and the Dark Watcher moves his hand and they um, uh, take a puff of whatever it was they were smoking, a cigarette of some kind, and the Dark Watcher emits a cloud of, of, of smoke, which very much puts that Brock and Spectre, I think, into play. But well, the, the Dark Watchers have read the poem by now and know that they're Jungian right. shadows. So exactly. They're, 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 they're big, big Robinson Jeffers fans, the Dark Watchers. But my theory is that let's say that it begins as infrasound and Brock and Spectering has been built into a tulpa. And so what is going on is that this whole area obviously is full of uh, secret military uh, projects. I mean, you've got the uh, Monterey Language Lab at the north end of it. You've got the Camp Pendleton at the south end of it. You've got a whole bunch of possibilities that the uh, Dark Watchers are being weaponized, that they are the sort of um, seed culture from which the CIA comes back or whoever to grow more tulpas. And they have this precise combination of sound, light, and witnesses. And in the same way that uh, Majestic is starting the UFO wave in the 1960s by flying their saucers around and dickering with uh, gray aliens, uh, you have a possibility that someone is saying, let's see if we can clone this Dark Watcher technology and use it to either awaken the land so we can have a deal with it or be our own watchers and keep an eye on things. And maybe we can find a spot somewhere in Siberia near a radar installation that also has a mountain and some infrasound and we can drop our Dark Watcher there and uh, cause them to uh, either be haunted or give us some kind of psychic feedback to a position that we hold in uh, the Big Sur Mountains. Uh, another way to work them into a scenario is that initially you think uh, that it's the Dark Watchers doing whatever the horrible thing is. And then, in fact, you realize that, yes, they're figures who observe. They're eerie. They're creepy. Getting too close to them can sort of uh, cause weird effects and so forth. But really, they uh, are the ones who have the information you need about whoever the real threat is, whether it's serpent people or manifestations of Carcosa or vampires. Uh, and uh, if you can get to them and uh, undergo the ordeal that is uh, melding with them and understanding them, that they can convey to you the thing that they've been watching all along, right? Who They're basically supernatural security cameras if you know how to, how to unlock them. And of course, uh, as we know, they're called dark watchers. Uh, there is some sort of price to be paid for uh, gaining uh, that sort of uh, supernatural information. And you might suggest even that if that character who has done that uh, later dies, whether in this scenario or even later, perhaps it is their fate to wind up on the side of the Santa Lucia Mountains as another dark watcher. And uh, folks, before this happens to any of us, I think it's time for us to exit this podcast. But you can be sure that we'll be back next week with a whole bunch more of this nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast pigeons from going hatless alongside beloved Patreon backers. Miko. 
Irexanen, Trung Boy, Wayne Rossi, Ryan Thomas, and Andrew Carey. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top-selling design, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a Triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>